CHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. A former manager at SAC Capital is found guilty of insider trading. U.S. economic data come in better than expected, and Twitter's stock falls 24% after yesterday's earnings disappointment. In overall market action, Wall Street surged, and so did Europe. Investors liked the data and the earnings and decided, at least today, that the glass was half full instead of half empty. Also, the ECB and the Bank of England stood pat, no change in monetary policy. We firmly reiterate our forward guidance. We continue to expect the key ECB interest rates to remain at present or lower levels for an extended period of time. This expectation is based on an overall subdued outlook for inflation extending into the medium term given the broad-based weakness of the economy and subdued monetary dynamics. That's the ECB chief Mario Draghi, and we'll look at that story a little bit later. In our featured segments this morning, the mad professor Tobias Hexter is with us from Chinese University. He'll join us for his take on volatile markets. Also, is the tech firm Lenovo on the right track? After shelling out some $5 billion in recent acquisitions for IBM and Google, or to IBM and Google, Jennifer Hughes, a Lex column writer at the Financial Times, will join us for that. And as the Olympics in Sochi kick off, what are the money angles after the stories subside about exterminating dogs and leaky toilets, uh, which have been most of the stories coming out of the journalists who got there early? Danny Hicks from AFP will join us for that. Uh, markets right now in Asia, the Nikkei is up 240 points. That's a gain of 1.7%. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up two-thirds of 1%. So too is the Kospi in Seoul, up 12 points at 1920. Here's how the currencies shake out. The U.S. dollar is worth 102.06 Japanese yen. The euro is now 1.358 U.S. dollars and the pound 12 Hong Kong dollars and 66 cents. Okay, let's get the news before we bring in Tobias Hexter, who is adjunct associate professor at Chinese University Hong Kong's Finance Trading Academy. So he's kind of a specialist in strategies, particularly with derivatives. And Tobias will be with us after we get through some of the news flow. As I mentioned, the federal jury in Manhattan has convicted Matthew Martoma of insider trading charges. He was found guilty of trying to get some confidential information from a doctor on an experimental Alzheimer's drug. More from Bloomberg's Mark Crumpton. He was found guilty in the most lucrative insider trading scheme ever. Federal prosecutors racking up a seventh conviction in that six-year investigation of the hedge fund and its billionaire founder, Stephen A. Cohen. Stephen A. Cohen is a big fish, Matthew Martoma, not so much. Uh, the inside information was provided mainly by a doctor who was familiar with the results of the clinical trial on that Alzheimer drug. He was the government's main witness. Martoma is expected to face a prison sentence of seven to ten years.
On Wall Street, stocks rose to their best gains of the year. Claims for unemployment benefits fell. So that was part of the better economic data that we told you about. And earnings beat estimates. Disney, for instance, gained 5.3% after posting strong profits. Coca-Cola gained 1.1% after agreeing to buy 10% of Green Mountain coffee roasters. Green Mountain surged 26%. Cliff Robbins, uh, who runs a a hedge fund called Blue Harbor, says 2014 will be a year where the macro story will matter less. I do think that in 2014 it's going to be a stock picker's market. I think that the market's not going to likely go straight up like it did in 2013. So it'll be a good year for for folks who can find good ideas. And I really think stock selection is going to matter a ton. He thinks mergers and acquisitions will be a big part of the story this year. I think that, uh, speaking broadly, uh, M&A is going to again be big uh, uh, for us, and I think generally in the market there's lots of cash on corporate balance sheets and the economy is healing and confidence in the boardroom is brewing. I think we're going to see lots of M&A in 2014. And I also think uh, companies are going to be optimizing their cash and their balance sheets. We're going to see lots of companies do buybacks and special dividends and and find ways to allocate their capital better uh, in 2014. Twitter was down 24% after reporting a wider-than-expected loss and slowing user growth. In the end, the S&P 500 was up 1.2% at 1773. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 188 to 15,628. Jobless claims dropped 20,000 to 331,000 in the last week, the latest week that uh, we get the data from. The decline may mean that employers are somewhat more confident that demand for goods and services will hold up. The non-farm payrolls report, by the way, is due out tonight. Economists expect businesses to have added 188,000 employees in January after that meager 87,000 increase in December. Let's take a look at European markets. Uh, the FTSE 100 was up 100 points. That was a gain of 1.5%. The DAX was also up 1.4%. And the Cacarant in Paris gained 1.7%. The ECB and the Bank of England both kept interest rates unchanged. Mario Draghi, the ECB president, said conditions are stable. Recent evidence fully confirms our decision to maintain an accommodative stance on monetary policy for as long as necessary, which will assist the gradual recovery in the euro area. He said inflation is not elevated. We are now experiencing a prolonged period of low inflation, which will be followed by gradual upward movement towards inflation rates below, but close to 2% later on. Regarding the medium-term outlook for prices and growth, further information and analysis will become available in early March. So we're expecting more from the ECB then at a March meeting. And uh, looking at the bond market, at least U.S. Treasuries, the yield on the 10-year Treasury crept up to 2.70%. And the fear gauge, the VIX, fell 14% to 17.23. Joined now by Tobias Hexter, adjunct associate professor at Chinese University's Finance Trading Academy. Tobias, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So we have had a lot of volatility. Last time I tried to get you on the program, you said you were too busy. All this volatility meant you were quite a busy man. So you've been you've been loving it. Um, I must say from my professional side, um, working in volatility arbitrage, uh, volatility is good for me. But I think the interesting part indeed about our email conversation shows how brief this spike of volatility actually was. 
Because now I'm in the studio and we've seen just mentioning the VIX already going down quite a bit, that these bursts of volatilities are short-lived. It was very strange yesterday for me, even tracking this as closely as I do, that we had a pretty weak lead-in from Wall Street. And yesterday morning, all the numbers green across Asian markets in the morning. What happened? Yeah, one thing you can look at is that if you take from the start of January, you actually saw that the Asian markets took a start going down. Because if you look at Hong Kong, it was a pretty nasty start of the year. But not necessarily on the radar, at least from the volatility perspective of my working, uh, because you didn't really see that increase in anxiety in the market. That only kicked in when the Americans took the lead. And that looked more like what they call in German an aha erlebnis. Because suddenly the emerging markets were in play, because things that have been playing out for months, I would say, things like Argentina, uh, the Ukraine, you got Turkey, suddenly hit people's eyeballs in combination with another tapering discussion, and suddenly there was this brief bout of panic. But just as quickly as it came, indeed, uh, as of yesterday, it also started to recede again. What do you think the catalyst for that was? Yeah, what you see is if you look at the talking heads on CNBC and all the other uh, channels, uh, people start to use the central bank playbook. Uh, apparently, we've been here 18 times since 2009 that yeah. we had a 5% correction. Yes. And in Bernanke or now in Janet, we trust they'll save us buy on dips. I'm not so sure that that's actually the case. Um, you know, the environment last year was the Fed was always there. But now the Fed is moving and it's moving to reduce the stimulus. So it may just be that, you know, if you look at the past many years, we did have, what was it, 18 times a 5% pullback and then the bull market continued. And then you had all these guys like Larry Fink and uh, Leon Cooperman, you know, some pretty seasoned old cats saying, look, this is a... A garden variety correction, and it will pass. So who knows? Maybe that maybe they're right. Yeah, and it's the one thing about the stimulus, because I love the fact that the taper is being seen as quite aggressive, but they just reduce the pace at which money is printed. And of course, as just mentioned, we have uh, Mr. Draghi sitting in the woodwork, ready to provide some punch bowl to the party. But I think if you look at a volatility perspective, which is my business, uh, this is sort of reflected in markets because the levels of anxiety are not necessarily that large. When we talked about big spikes in the VIX, that is also coming off incredibly low levels. So inherently, there seems to be some kind of a belief that indeed this will remain to be a correction. Well, you know, the comment from that hedge fund operator uh, that we played uh, a short while ago uh, um, he was saying that there will be volatility this year, but it will be with individual companies and stocks. Uh, the macro story won't drive things as much. And you saw, like Twitter, down 24% the next day's trade after announcing its earnings, which were uh, modestly disappointing. So you'll still have a lot of volatility, won't you? It just won't be in the, you know, in the overall fear level of the market. Yeah, from my perspective, I tend to disagree with that. I think there's enough flashpoints and enough macro and central bank driven things happening that we will see a lot of macro events and if i would dig into the comments uh, when talking about managing cash balances and uh, company investors i think there's also a macro related touch to that uh, in the end it's uh, the tide that lifts all ships and indeed these massive amounts of cash on bank on company balance sheets are also looking at yeah, what are the alternative ways to spend that so you're saying the overall environment is unhealthy 
not necessarily unhealthy, but uh, we should remember that since 2009, we are in an unprecedented experiment in which uh, the threat of deflation is being countered by, again, unprecedented liquidity. We should not forget that, that uh, while things appear relatively stable, there is still, or there ought to be, a lot of insecurity or uncertainty underneath. And it's up until now, Bernanke has been doing his juggling game very well, and now Janet is on the lead. But it does only need one or two balls to drop in the central banks, playing this massive operation for things to get dicey. So would you say that you're net short at the moment then? Uh, no, if, if I would look at our fund, we always are... Um, matching or level of uh, hedged in volatility. To, to, sorry, to, to explain a bit, uh, we don't take a directional view on the market. We don't take an overall directional view on volatility as a whole, but we look where is volatility relatively underpriced compared to where it's overpriced. So my overall stance is neutral. Having said that, in a way, I benefit if something happens in the market, because then there could be dislocations that I can see as opportunities. So is volatility underpriced in your jargon for Europe at the moment? Europe is a bit difficult. Um, well, let me put it this way. Where do you see, where do you see areas that are either overpriced or, or underpriced in terms of the volatility? Being very general, also not to talk too much about my book, um, Asia tends to have pockets of underpriced volatility. And part of that is also structural. Uh, in the end, Asian investors do engage in selling of, uh, for example, put options in these structured products, yield enhancement. On the other side, in general, and that's very generalistic, U.S. volatility tends to be overpriced because there the knee-jerk reaction is to buy protection. So I told everybody listening that you were the mad professor, and right now their head is spinning. But Sorry. is it fair enough to say that if volatility, in your view, is underpriced, then people don't have enough fear for what could happen? Is that, is that plain English of what you're saying? Yes, I would say in the end it, it's, it's all about animal spirits. Um, people talk about greed and fear, and options can be seen in a way as insurance premium. When everybody is confident, bullish, or even a bit greedy, people dare to sell insurance because things are not going to get bad anyway. In that case, people tend to be net sellers of options, depressing volatility. When suddenly there's a fear in the market, everybody rushes to insure a burning house. And then, of course, these insurance premium go up. In my opinion, but that's more my personal opinion, I think volatility tends to be underpriced because there's people, whether it's justified or not is a second thing, trusting that the central banks and the liquidity provided will put a dampening on things if it really gets ugly. So it's cheap to buy insurance in Asia, in your view. Um, why should people um, be pricing that in a more expensive way? In other words, what should they be concerned about? Um, it, it's not necessarily that you should think there should be much more movement, but you could benefit from it if you hold a certain portfolio of shares and you would agree that things could get dicey, then you can benefit from the relatively low volatility levels by buying protection. Either you could start uh, to put some to buy some put options under your portfolio, or you could change some into a co-option, which effectively both does the same. It reduces your downside risk, and it still keeps you the upside, albeit at the payment of a premium. So for people in Hong Kong trading stocks on this local market, how do they use options? Um, 
But what you see here, of course, you have the, the options market and you have the warrants market. Warrants. And they're sort of similar with one difference, I dare say. Uh, the market in options is symmetric. If you think it's too expensive, you sell it, which effectively means that you short an option. Whereas warrants, you can only sell if you already own them. So there's a bit of an asymmetry in the warrants market, which I dare say is reflected in pricing. But in general, I would say, um, if you look at, at investors should, uh, are relatively sophisticated trading options in Hong Kong, I think people trade it both directionally, but also indeed um, the protection on their portfolio. Or another thing that you find quite popular is what in the US is called a buy ride. If you hold stock of, let's say, Hutchinson, and you wouldn't mind selling out the stock a month from now at a 10% higher price. What people tend to do is to sell an up a call option with a higher strike. So if the share price goes up, then they will get assigned in that call and they sell the stock at that higher price, which in the beginning they didn't mind doing. If it doesn't happen, they've received an additional yield from selling that option. So that is another relatively popular strategy. Okay. It's uh, one of these things, uh, if you're listening, you can go back and listen in the archive. You can go to rthk.hk, find your way to Radio 3 and Money for Nothing. You can listen back to what uh, Tobias said, and you can uh, go th- slowly through it if you try to understand it. For you Sharpies out there that uh, uh, already understood it, you can st- still go back and listen uh, uh, for fun. Um, it's rthk.hk and Money for Nothing. Tobias, unfortunately out of time, but thank you very much for joining us here. Tobias Hexter from from Chinese University and the Finance Trading Academy there. And we're joined now by Jennifer Hughes, Lex writer at uh, the Financial Times for Asia. Jennifer, good morning. Um, sorry for our, uh, not a more proper intro, but we wanted to look at Lenovo. Lenovo share price has been under pressure here of late as it has fallen from about $11 a share in Hong Kong to 8.30 over the past month. Lenovo shelling out more than $5 billion for Motorola m- mobility from Google and the server business business at IBM from IBM. So thank you for joining us and good morning. Good morning. Um, Is Lenovo making some smart calls with this or are they sort of getting yesterday's uh, stories? We think it it seems to be smart calls, at least with the first, because, you know, buying the server business, that makes sense. Everyone said, yay, the shares rose. Less than a week later, it says, by the way, by the way, we're buying another company that hasn't made money in forever, and it makes smartphones. But the thing that was kind of funny about IBM's earnings weren't so good because supposedly their servers business was not well positioned, that most people were now using the cloud, and they weren't using those IBM servers. So why would Lenovo want to buy it unless they just got it for really cheap? They did get it pretty cheap. It has been loss-making just for the last year, so they've got a little bit of work to do to turn it around. But the main thing is that Lenovo's position is big in China, and China, there's a lot of space for this low-end server business to grow. So people can say, fine, you stick Lenovo scale with this business, and they can probably do it more cheaply than IBM, so that's a good deal. And what about the handset business uh, from Motorola? Do they get uh, access to the patents, but they don't get the patents? They get access to some of the patents. It's not a bad thing. The way that they seem to be wanting to do this deal is that they get access to the U.S. smartphone market. I mean, for them, being number two in China and number four in the world is not enough. They want to get into the U.S. market. I think the top end of the Lenovo phone range is like $300 phones, which is sort of mid-range. It's not up there with the, the Samsung Galaxies and the Apples of this world. 
And so would you say that this purchase uh, doesn't seem quite as wise? That's definitely how I would see it, because it's just very expensive. Motorola hasn't made money in forever. Nobody makes money in high-end smartphones apart from Apple and Samsung. Look at, say, HTC. Cool phones, no profits. And what about this um, rumor out there about the Vio brand from Sony uh, and some possible action there? Are, Are you hearing much on that? Well, Sony said yesterday it signed the basics of a deal to sell it to somebody else, which is really good news for Sony and probably for Lenovo. I mean, that's two deals in about a week, $5 billion worth of acquisitions. They've got to digest. That's a lot. I mean, they've got ambitions. Lenovo would like to be the next Samsung, though it's got a way to go yet. It needs a bit of space to get these two deals underway first. What is Lenovo getting the most right at the moment? The scale in the PC business. I mean, laptops aren't particularly sexy. They haven't been for a long time. You can see why it wants to get into smartphones. High-end smartphones are fun. They're glamorous. There's big consumer launches, all sorts of fun stuff. But they've managed to go from pretty much nowhere and buying IBM sort of also ran. It was a decent but also ran business in PCs to making it the world's largest PC maker. That's pretty impressive. And when you hear about the decline in the PC industry, uh, it seems to run counter to every office you go in has tons of PCs sitting on the on the desk. I mean, there's lots of um, desktops around. And if the overall economy is expanding, you'd expect it to still be a pretty solid business. It should be a solid one. It just won't be a massively exciting one. I mean, when did you last upgrade your laptop? Between probably, I'm guessing, a tablet, a smartphone, a laptop, maybe an iPod or some MP3 player. We've got more tech that we spend more time on these days, so it's not just laptops and PCs. So are investors right to sell down this stock from $11 to 831 um, I know you're probably not a stock picker, but uh, what are you hearing from investors? I think anyone who's bought it after the first deal, after the IBM one, would be pretty annoyed right now. Um, That was a very harsh reaction. But to my mind, Lenovo hasn't justified the Motorola deal. So I can see why, because investors were hoping that this was going to become a stock that finally was going to start making real free cash flow, start paying more dividends. It was sort of a cash story. And it just said, by the way, we spent $5 billion. Okay, Jennifer, interesting material. Thank you very much. Jennifer Hughes, Lex Rider for Asia at the Financial Times. Well, the Sochi Olympics kicking off later today with an opening ceremony that will light a flame over one of the most controversial games in recent memory. The $50 billion price tag, allegations of corruption, and the poor state of some of the facilities have been some of the concerns. We wanted to talk money angles, and Danny Hicks, the editor of of Sports Direct at AFP, joins us now. Danny, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So you've been taking a look here at uh, Sochi. We've all heard all of these funny stories about uh, signs that say don't fish in the toilets and you know, all this um, nonsensical stuff. But some more serious things that uh, they were rounding up dogs for extermination yeah. because there's so many dogs there. Um, once we get past that, and we get into the games. What are some of the big money angles in your view? Well, I think, I think you know, the proof of the pudding is always in the eating and uh, the games, let's see how successful they are. But these are the most expensive Olympic Games, summer or winter, in history, which is quite astonishing. Uh, when you consider the London Games, uh, the Summer Olympics just gone a couple of years ago cost around $20 billion and were highly successful, regarded as possibly the, the most successful games in in history and left a 
uh, a lasting legacy of regeneration of a, of a part of the capital city that was run down and sports facilities and all the rest of it. <laughs> what, what are they getting out of their 50 billion they've spent in Sochi? They've got some road and rail links uh, which will remain between uh, Sochi and the, and, and the uh, mountain resorts. And uh, that's about it, as far as I can see. And where did most of the money come from? Well, this is, uh, this is another moot point. I mean, this seems to have been a pet project of uh, P- President Vladimir Putin, who uh, has been behind it all. And uh, he, he seems to be the big driver in it. But, the, the, you know, the money... Let's face it, Russia is not short of money in, in certain areas with oligarchs and so on. Uh, there's huge amounts of sponsorship as well that go into the Olympics and obviously people who are, who are building hotels and, and infrastructure and so on uh, uh, have a stake in it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing sums of money, really. Uh, I can't imagine where $51 billion has gone to, to stage a, uh, an event which basically has 14 sports in it. Um, it's just... It's just staggering. When we look at the athletes, uh, who might emerge from these Olympics, like Michael Phelps uh, from the previous uh, Olympics? Well, I don't, I don't, you know, winter sports are not really my boat, and in this part of the world, let's face it, we're not uh, we're not too uh, too interested in it sometimes. But I think it'll be a great spectacle to watch. There's there's some new sports which are going to catch my eye: the, the snowboarding, uh, something called slope style, which uh, has never been in the Olympics before, which basically is kind of this hot dogging snowboarding. Uh, people but even that's been steeped in controversy people are saying the course is too dangerous and uh, one of the favorites for it broke his collarbone in training last week so um there's all sorts of things going on there's going to be a lavish opening ceremony as usual with these events and uh, perhaps that's a, a sign of just the that's going to be a, a sort of uh, a barometer of the over extravagance of these games i think money's been frittered away there's all that this 51 billion cost it's all that up to a third of it may have gone basically disappeared into the pockets of people through corruption and, and backhanders and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, it's just... Let, let's concentrate on the sport and uh, for a change and, and, and deal with the athletes and, and not spend all this money. I mean, it, it, the opening ceremony, will it? Will we even remember the athletes parading in it? What, it's, what is it going to be? The London ceremony was fantastic, but, you know, it, it takes away from the... For me, as a, as a sports fan, it takes away from the, the idea that... The, the Olympic idea, which was athletes doing their best, you know, the higher, stronger, faster ideal. Now we seem to just be more expensive, more extravagant, and uh, how much money can we throw at these events? But once the games get underway, won't we focus more on the sport? Well, I hope we do. I really hope we do. And, uh, you know, there was a few events uh, started yesterday, actually. Uh, There's a few sort of preliminary rounds for various things, but really gets going in earnest today and tomorrow. And And what about the broadcast rights? Because that obviously generates an awful lot of money. It does, yes. And um, NBC up to uh, at the top? Uh, I imagine so. I haven't looked into the figures on it, but uh, obviously the European broadcasters, you know, winter sports are huge across uh, across certainly the Alpine and Nordic countries in Europe, certainly North America, Canada. When you get things like the ice hockey starting up and you're going to get, you know, Canada v. United States, you will expect huge TV audiences uh, around the world and, and certainly in North America. So a premium will have been paid for those rights. But it's, you know, the Winter Olympics to me is kind of, it's not the Summer Olympics, is it? The Summer Olympics is something that we all look forward to every four years the winter olympics sort of comes along and oh there it is and before we know it it's gone and does it justify spending this amount of money i think the ioc have got to get together and look at how they put together olympic bids especially for things like the winter games in future and decide do we want to spend all this money all right danny thanks very much for taking a look at it danny hicks editor of sports direct at afp sport 
Well, markets broadly higher this morning. The Nikkei is up more than 2%. In Australia and Seoul, we're seeing gains of half to two-thirds of 1%. Weather-wise today, a little bit of a change underway, mainly cloudy, some mist patches, and warm conditions at some point with sunny periods. The news with Etienne Lamy-Smith. Roads have been reopened in the Wan Chai and Happy Valley area, near to where a massive World War II bomb was found yesterday. The U.S. bomb, weighing almost a ton, was found at a construction site near the Cosmopolitan Hotel. A police team has been defusing it on site. Due to the road closures this morning and the suspension of some bus routes, traffic is still congested in the area. Yim Kai Long is a chief transport officer from the transport department. Due to the special arrangement of the police at uh, the Prince Road East uh, before, a uh, number of roads in Wan Chai and Happy Valley have once been uh, temporarily closed, uh, including a section of uh, Prince Road East, Stops Road and Wan Ai Chung Road, and, and also the Aberdeen Tunnel. But uh, at about 7.25, uh, police confirmed that these roads are gradually reopened, and so the traffic will resume normal gradually. Political differences between the United States and the European Union over the crisis in Ukraine have been highlighted by an apparently bugged conversation between two top U.S. diplomats. Talking to the U.S. ambassador to Kiev, the Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland is heard using an expletive to criticize 